Assyrian art is an art that has been kept to Assyrians. It has not been mainstreamed. So not too many people, non-Assyrians, has seen Assyrian art. They don't recognize Assyrian art. They have not enjoyed Assyrian art. And this is a very, very unique art that deserves to be showcased and shown to the world. Salam alaikum everyone and welcome to episode 85 of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Adessa and it's a pleasure to introduce you to this week's guest, Miss Nora Yusuf Lacey. Born in Iran, Nora migrated to the United States in her teen years. While she had many trying times throughout her life, one thing has been very clear. When she sees a vision, she follows through. As a single mother working in the biotech field, she made the jump in 1994 to start a company called Cellmark, which supplied pathology labs with medical devices that helped to detect and screen for cancer and infectious diseases. She later sold her company in 2014 for $170 million. These days, Nora stays busy as the founder of the Assyrian Arts Institute, which aims to preserve, present, and promote the cultural wealth of Assyrian artists globally. If you have ever attended an Assyrian Arts Institute event, they are truly something and I've been impressed with AAI's high standards for putting on one-of-a-kind events. Since we recorded this back in February of this year, there's been a huge announcement that is worth me mentioning. In July, it was announced that through Nora's generous gift of $675,000, the esteemed university UC Berkeley in California will have an Assyrian Studies program beginning in 2020. Nora is a visionary whose story I think will inspire you and I hope you will enjoy this episode. But first, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligrakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligrakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 982 Support is also brought to you by John Oshana. John is a real estate professional in Arizona and California. Whether you're thinking about buying or selling real estate in Arizona or California, put John's proven track record to work. John's focus is residential, multi-units, and commercial properties. You can check John out at facebook.com backslash John Oshana, that's O-U-S-H-A-N-A, realtor, or Instagram at john.oshana. Or you can contact him by phone today at 209-968-9519. Lastly, are you looking for an Assyrian dictionary? You can search for anything on sargonsays.com. Things like, how are you? Good morning. And will you marry me? Search for Assyrian Podcast on sargonsays.com for a special surprise. sargonsays.com is a proud sponsor of this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. And now, I am so excited to bring to you Nora Bit Yusuf Lacey. So Nora, in doing some research about you, I understood that your parents were born in Iran, that you were born in Abadan. Yes. And at the age of 15, yes. uh, you had moved from Iran to the U.S., 
Correct. I know that for myself, when my parents told me that I had to move schools from one location to San Jose to another, that I felt like my life <laughs> was going to be the hardest thing ever and transition was going to be so difficult. So, And that was only moving within San Jose. So I can't imagine what it was like for you. What sort of emotions were going on for you at 15 years old, going from a place that you knew to be home for 15 years into a new country? It's a very good question because me and my family, we were on vacation in the U.S. when regime changed and in Iran, and it was not a place that my parents wanted us to be, and they decided to leave us here with the family. So, so this was during the time of the revolution? A revolution, mm-hmm. exactly. So we, me and my sister, we stayed with my father's aunt. We finished high school here. I was 11th grade. Basically came here with uh, not much knowledge of English. And uh, I had to learn English here in U.S. So it was difficult. Yes, yes. And I was very social in Iran. I had a lot of friends. I left them behind without saying goodbye. And thanks to uh, Facebook and social media, now I have found a lot of those friends and reconnected. But at that time, it was very difficult, as it is for any 15, 16-year-old teenager. And then, of course, my parents went back home and uh, tried, tried to sell their belongings and move to a new country. Um, It was a very difficult time, especially for a social person like me. I uh, had a lot of friends at home. And when I was in high school, American high school, couldn't speak English, but really wanted to find friends and connect. And, you know, people in high school wanted to become my friend and connect because they saw the enthusiasm, probably. When you came here and you were going to high school, what area of the U.S. were you living in? I was in Turlock. In Turlock. Yes. And uh, Did my... you go to Turlock High School? No. Oh, okay. Actually, <laughs> I went to Central Catholic High School in Modesto. Okay. So... Basically, that's how I learned English in school and uh, kind of uh, found American friends and kind of grew and got my diploma and uh, started looking and getting into college. And Which college did you end up going to? Stanislaus. Oh, Stanislaus. <laughs> so you stayed local. Yeah, I stayed local until I got married to my Assyrian husband, father of my children, Joe Agassi, when I was only 19 years old. Uh, So you're still in college then while you got married? Yes. Actually, I was finishing the first or second year of college, got married, and moved to San Jose from Turlock. Was that common back then? Because I'm trying to think of myself when I was 19 years old, and I was not ready for marriage at all at that time. I know my mom had a saying that the girls need to be married before age of 20, and basically we met that goal of hers. (laughs) So anyway, to make the long story short, I moved to San Jose, had two daughters, but you know, couldn't maintain my marriage. And after seven years of being in the marriage, at age 25 or 26, I divorced. Mm -hmm. And uh, Was that really tough? 
Yes, of course. It's very, very tough. Uh, it's tough to have children at the age I was in. It was tough to be a mom and go to school, try to finish school, and have a, lo- a life with your husband. So it was, yeah, a lot of complications. And then things got even tougher because then I was a single mom and I was forced to get a job, uh, go to work. And, you know, basically my job uh, transferred me to Texas, gave me an opportunity to move to Texas, gave me a raise and, you know, promotion, something that uh, as a single mom, working mom, I uh, basically couldn't refuse. Prior to you being married, when you were going to Stanislaus, what were you foreseeing for yourself in terms of a degree, in terms of your goals? Well, I always dreamt of being a doctor Mm. and do humanitarian work and make my contribution to to the world that way. That's why I chose the major that I was in, which is biology. But when I got married, my life circumstance changed, changed basically. Oh, that was on hold. Yes. And, and I doubled major. I got uh, into uh, business and biology, and, which was a great combination. Allowed me to start my own business later on in life. Anyway, so uh, basically I moved to Texas. Uh, with my job and worked for an employer that I learned a lot from. And after five years of working for the employer, I decided to start my own business. And At that time, were there any? Was there anybody that you knew in Texas? Were there no. any Assyrians <laughs> that you knew of? No, because this was Austin, Texas, Austin, right? Austin, Texas, and absolutely <laughs> no Assyrian, no Iranian, no Middle Eastern. I was basically working very hard and busy raising my children. Didn't even have a time to have a life, basically. Uh, So I basically dedicated my time to my work and raising my children. When your employer had told you that they'd like for you to relocate to Texas, what was going on in your mind? Actually, I was looking forward to the opportunity because... I needed a change. Like a new chapter. A new chapter. And I needed to be on my own because when I was in the community, my parents, my family, and everybody was very kind and supportive, but I needed to be on my own. I had to heal and uh, focus on my daughters and on my self-growth. And that's exactly what happened. Even when I went to Texas, I was not seeking to meet communities or, you know, I had a church that was very good to me. But beside that, I wanted to be on my own and reflect and grow. And so it was a very, very special time of my life when I was in Austin in 1990s. What did the healing process look like for you? The healing process was reading a lot. I learned to make decisions. Believe it or not, that was one of the things that surprised me when I started getting 
I, when I got a job and saw how easily people make decisions, I learned that I was not allowed to make too many decisions on my own. And when I was on my own, I started to think and make decisions based mm-hmm. on information that I gathered. And when the decisions were good and the result was positive, it was very encouraging. So I loved that part of my life when I was growing as an individual uh, without having any influence from outside. People that were important to me and their opinions were important. I feel like that's so relatable, especially for a lot of younger people who make the argument that they'd like to go off for college or for work or something just to be able to have that ability, especially during those very keen years of being able to develop and understand who they are as a person. Absolutely. So it seemed like that was that type of opportunity for you in Texas where it allowed you to do that. How old were you at that time? I was uh, late. It was my late 20s. Late 20s. Yes, when I... In in nineties, I moved there nineteen ninety one, and stayed there till two thousand, when I got married and moved to where my husband worked. Yeah. So in this company, you were were you working as a biologist? I started as a entry level biologist and worked in different departments like production, manufacturing. Uh, then I got promoted into customer service and uh, start talking to customers. And then the company decided that they want to make me their technical salesperson. So they moved me to Texas, gave me five states for me to travel to and meet people in hospitals, in histology labs specifically and sell them a bio uh, product and support, technically support the product that I was just selling. To and what were the five states? Were they neighboring? Yes, it was Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, New Mexico, and Louisiana. Any memorable uh, stories? <laughs> a from lot your... <laughs> of memorable <laughs> stories on every trip. Actually, I loved my job because I loved my customers. And uh, it seems like there was this very tight relationship between me and the customers. I really wanted to see them succeed. I was very honest with them. I was behind them and constantly doing technical workshops and classes uh, to help them learn the science between the pro- uh, behind the product and when they were using it, how to troubleshoot it procedure and stuff like that and they were very thankful and very supportive and they were the one I built my company upon it was their loyalty to me and to my success that encouraged me to leave my former employer and start my own business uh, in the same line as I was before. So to me, like that sounds like a huge leap of faith. Yes, you're familiar with that area of work, but what ultimately led you to that decision to say, you know what, I'm gonna, I feel confident enough and I think I've got something here and I'm gonna go ahead and try this out and open up my own business. 
Well, first, it was my business classes, my business education. Always teachers encourage you in business class to start your own business and see how it works. So that was always in the back of my mind. But the moment that it, basically the decision was made for me to start my own business was actually, believe it or not, due to me seeing a house that I liked. I had a very modest living with my two daughter, a nice house in a nice family-oriented neighborhood. But then I went and saw a open house, a beautiful house, and I said, I need to be able to afford a lifestyle like that. So, uh, and when I did the math, I found out that unless I start my own business, I won't be able to afford a house like that. So that was my motivation to leave my former employer, start my own business, and most important to stay in business because a lot of people can start businesses, but the trick is to stay in business. And I needed that carrot. I needed that goal to motivate me to basically uh, stay and be tough and have my eyes on the goal. On the prize, yeah. Absolutely. I remember I was listening to your uh, interview with a b and you said that you were goal-oriented and money-motivated. I love that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it. Be, it's realistic. I have to be honest. <laughs> it's realistic. You exactly. saw something, you envisioned it, you're like, okay, yes. I have to reevaluate my life. The way that I'm going right now, yeah. I'm not going to attain that goal. I'm not going to reach that goal. And so something's got to change. Exactly. And so when you decided to start your own business, what was it that you were creating? The product? Yep, the product. Product was called antibodies mm-hmm. for a procedure that is called immunohistochemistry. So we... And what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well... In lay language, it means that antibodies are proteins that body produces to fight diseases, including cancer, because cancer is not normal for a body. And so whenever there is tumor or cancer, body produces antibodies trying to fight it, but cancer is always stronger than antibodies. But we basically take uh, that information and that, uh, that characteristic of antibodies that bind to the tumors or any other proteins in the body, and we produce antibodies that will detect that type of protein in the body. So we had, our company had like over 300 different antibodies that were capable of binding to different type of proteins that they were produce to detect. And uh, also we were producing chemicals called detection system to show where antibodies are binding to those proteins in the tissue. So basically this product was sold to histology lab. Histology is uh, basically science of uh, tissue, study of tissue. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever there is a tumor tumor is removed and that tumor or tissue goes to histology lab where it is fixed and placed on uh, slides 
and uh, our product antibodies and detection systems are applied to the tissue and antibody is able to detect whatever the target is if the target is certain type of tumor or cancer or infectious agents whatever the antibody is made to detect and who created this because i know that you've created a few things you have a few patents out there who created this well the antibody uh, technology was created 40 years before i got involved in in that uh, industry but uh, what we created was a methodology that unmasked the tissue to allow antibodies to find the antigens or the targets, uh, the proteins that we are talking about. It has so many names scientifically. So uh, that unmasking process also was done, uh, but with very harsh and chemicals that were not environmentally good. But what we did, we produced a product that with one step, instead of several steps, we were able to unmask with products that were safe to the environment and green. Could you just walk us through what was going on in your mind from the beginning stages of this business? You know, what were you envisioning when you were creating this? How did it exactly begin? What were some of the challenges? I was looking for a better, safer, quicker method to do the unmasking, talking about that particular pattern, because the gold standard method was several steps in organic chemicals, and then the disposal of those chemicals were challenging, and the unmasking was not done properly with those chemicals. So I was trying to see if we could find a way to improve. Hmm. So usually that's how inventions uh, happen. You see a problem and try to find a solution. Exactly. So, um, and we did. And we patented, and it was a very important patent to the current buyer of and owner of uh, my previous company. Like you must have been so proud to have helped create that patent. Yes, I uh, I cannot deny uh, it was a thrilling feeling. It was innovation. I loved my industry. I loved what I did. And when I was able to improve and make the life of people that supported my business and purchased my product easier and better and safer, it was a good feeling. When Cellmark was first created, how many employees did you have? (laughs) And how many customers did you have? And how did that grow throughout the years? Well, uh, Cellmark had a very humbling beginning. We started with two or three people. And out of my business partner's kitchen, sink (laughs) to be more specific and then pretty soon uh, because we knew the customer and customer wanted to see our product and our business succeed they supported us and pretty soon we needed bigger space so we moved into a business building our first business building in austin and that's how it started and then the company started 
doing more business, more customers, more opportunities, and grew from there. What year was this that it, that Selmark officially opened for business? The company started in 1994, mm-hmm. and we had to take one step at a time and make sure that the growth was controlled because we couldn't grow too fast and out of control and compromise quality. So quality was number one in our business. And uh, basically grew from there more customers. We grew beyond the immediate geography, hired salespeople, placed them in different strategic areas in the country. Uh, So we were all of a sudden selling to hospitals throughout U.S. And then we hired a sales manager that had international sales experience, and we started selling internationally. And when I sold the company in 2014, basically we were selling throughout the world. When you were first starting it, like, did you envision that that's what was going to happen? Or were you thinking it was just going to be something domestic? No, no, I was hoping. You, yeah, you knew. <laughs> Absolutely. You knew. You had, you had high hopes for this and it delivered. Absolutely. Yes, the product quality was excellent and we didn't want to hold the company back. So we were doing whatever we had to do to make sure that the product is known to, to the market that is interested. And yeah. yeah, hoping to sell it to as many people as possible. <laughs> Something that I, I pulled from the talk that I heard with you on A&B was that, so at some point during this process, you you remarried. You got remarried. Correct. With, yes. Yeah. And your husband had a model of treating employees with fairness and having them feel like they're valuable. How important is that for a, a company, would you say, in terms of um, upkeeping you know, yeah. employees and sustainability? Yeah, that's a very good question because uh, it is very important. Uh, employees work for employer that they like and they usually leave or they don't work as hard or passionately if they don't like or don't believe in the vision of the employer or the company. So, yeah, my husband came into the picture basically as the medical director. He's a pathologist. We needed a pathologist at the business because one of our big clients, which is now Roche Pharmaceutical, required uh, the company to have a pathologist on staff. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we hired him and he was the right fit. And then I knew him because he was a previous customer from my visits to the hospitals. He was a very supportive person to the business from the get-go. But then I asked him to come and work for us because we needed his skill set. And he brought his kindness and compassion to the business because when we were a small business and very few employees, there were just so much to do. We had to wear so many hats. There's so many orders I had to take and pack and ship and manufacture and do all this. Sometimes you don't have time to focus on the need of your employees. And when my husband came, uh, you know, uh, and worked for us, that was very important to him, that employees were 
treated right and they were happy and they were producing quality product with enthusiasm. So I really appreciated that. Did you all, did you get married through through that process or was this before, after? No, first he was my employee. <laughs> yeah, he worked for me. I was the president of the company. He was my medical director, my basically right hand. And then uh, we knew each other, but it was not a romantic relationship. But then it changed and we learned that we can not only be a great business partners, but also partner in life. Especially with the kindness, I just needed that emotional part of bring emotions into the business. I think that is very important. Yeah. And kindness and care, and that made a difference. Absolutely, especially when you're working for an employer. I mean, you want to feel valued. Exactly. You want to feel like the work that you're doing is not only important, but that you are are you feel like you are an important part of that company and so when anyone feels that way whether it be in a relationship or a work environment or anything they're more likely to stay when they feel valued like they feel like they have a purpose and that they truly feel like they are a thread you know a part of that that company so but i might add is that as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. I don't think we need that as much Mm -hmm. as people that are not entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. We don't do things for recognition Mm -hmm. as much as we do it because we have a personal goal to reach. Mm -hmm. So for us, being recognized or appreciated is not as important Mm -hmm. so when you're trying to treat people the way you like to be treated sometimes that factor is not on top of your list even though I saw when my husband came on board the way he was treating people how they enjoyed it I made him in charge of that part of the business and he did a great job everybody loved him and everybody was happy I was happy so I think that's a that's actually a very valid point is that you as an entrepreneur you had a very um you had a vision you had a goal and sometimes it's hard to be able to then concentrate on those components of it and so how fitting and how amazing to be able to have a a partner that is able to concentrate on that because together that creates for a really dynamic duo. (laughs) Exactly. Actually, that's what attracted me to my husband was with him, I was a better person. It seems like he came to bring something that I was missing in life. And uh, that was very fulfilling. Yeah. You talked about sort of this characteristic of being an entrepreneur. What do you think are some characteristics or strengths of an entrepreneur? What comes natural to you in that sense? What is natural to me is to be different, Mm. to do something that hasn't been done before, be innovative. Uh, We... um, at least I'll speak for myself. For me, it's not important what people think. It's important what I think. Uh, and if what I think and do is morally right for me, it, if it's legal, if it's moral, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so, 
So as long as I'm happy with that, people's opinion don't matter. Of course, you know, I have very important people in my life that I value their opinion, like my parents, like my siblings and stuff like that. But even that, I make the final decision on my own. That's something I learned and enjoy learning when I was, I moved out of San Jose and went to Texas and I was on my own reflecting and growing. Mm -hmm. So you sold Cellmark in 2014 to a pharmaceutical company? Correct. Okay. Uh, Yes. We sold it to a company called Sigma, where Sigma at the same time was sold to Merck. So Cellmark is now part of Merck Pharmaceuticals out of Germany. I am very happy and content because the employees that work so hard for Cellmark have opportunities. Being part of a bigger company gives them more flexibility to move in different directions and do different things, grow and experience different positions that sometimes a smaller company is more limited to offer that opportunity compared to a bigger company. So now that they are part of a bigger company, they they have more opportunities. Yeah. But that was like your baby. Was that <laughs> difficult to, to sell it to another company? It was difficult before I sold it. But it was the day after I sold the company, I basically was relieved because uh, I sold the company to the right buyer. Mm. So uh, actually, uh, for a long time, there were a lot of people that wanted to buy the company. And I was unable to part with the company and until this buyer came and it was the right buyer. They call it strategic buyer that basically I was proud and honored to hand the company to and knowing that they are going to take the company to the next level. So when you sold it, how many employees did you have at that time and how many people were you serving? Like was Selmark serving? It was over 100 employees that we had and we were basically serving histology labs throughout the world. Wow. And so did that close the chapter for you in terms of Texas or did you stay in Texas for a while after that? No, actually, I was in Texas till 2000. And then I married my husband who was practicing pathology in Arkansas. And we moved back there so he can continue until I totally discouraged him to leave Cellmark or not focus on Cellmark. Now, Cellmark was our company that we wanted to grow together as a couple, as partners. So basically, we moved to uh, to Arkansas for five years until company grew to a level that we needed more employees. And Arkansas is a very small state. I did my state report on that fun fact, fifth grade. Oh, my (laughs) God. Little Rock, Arkansas. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, people were very nice and uh, very welcoming and proud of the company and the technology we brought to their state. But unfortunately, we did not find the right talent that we needed at that time because a lot of uh, the industry was changing. A lot of regulations, FDA requirements. We needed quality control, quality assurance, 
to take us to the next level, especially to international market. So we had to move the company back to California where there was more resources and still there is a lot of resources in California in biotechnology that we could hire and take advantage of. And where in California? We moved to Sacramento area, a suburb called Rockland. And it was a very good move for the company. It was not in the hub of uh, biotechnology where we had to compete Mm -hmm. for employees or business. But it was plenty to give us uh, the type of employees we were looking for for a small business to bring on board. In today's um, interview, it was actually with the founder, Steve, and he spent some of his time, he was born and raised in Turlock, but he spent some of his time during his school years in Texas. And it was during that time that he was away from Assyrians. There was a few Assyrian friends that he had there, but he was away from Assyrians that he also similarly had that experience of needing to reflect and understanding better of who he was but it was also this like new sense of appreciation or newfound appreciation from being distant from the community for a while and then going back into it to realize what are the gems of that community did you feel something similar I, when you I had moved felt back? Exactly the similar way. Yes, when you reflect, you of course you reflect on the way you're raised and your community, your culture. I had opportunity to research the culture and the history of Assyrians and I was always fascinated by our ancestors and the things we can do to uh, continue the legacy of those amazing, amazing people we call our ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. And during that time that you were in Sacramento, I know that um, you used to put on like gatherings together. Were they picnics (laughs) that you used to organize? Actually, basically what happened was when we moved to California in Sacramento area, we found a property in Newcastle, California, one of another suburbs of Sacramento, that reminded me of the village in Urmi that my father used to take us there. His family owned, you know, the farm, the grape farm, as a lot of Assyrians lived and were raised in farms and villages. So that place reminded me of, called Kuzlashuk. <laughs> Kuzlashuk and- That was the village that he was from? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so it reminded you of the, the orchards or the- Actually it the is- The vineyards? Yes, it's a working farm, it's an orchard with 8,000 fruit trees. Yes, 55 acres and organic farm and stuff like that. Beautiful place. But it smelled, it had the same smell as what I recall when I was young in Urmi, you know, and going to my grandparents' village and villagers and people there. So it just touched my heart. And I was basically emotionally tied to that property and home. And at that time, Assyrians started coming to Sacramento, moving there, and more and more Assyrians lived there and basically became a club and decided to do picnics at the orchard. 
that we lived in. So once a year, we had this picnic and people came. And the reason they liked it was, first, uh, they were free. It was not like a public park that you cannot have your music too loud. Yeah, this was private property. Yeah, it was a (laughs) private property. And people came, they picked fruit, fresh fruit off the tree. I think it reminded them of their lives back home as well as kind of the same way I was feeling about the property. They were welcome. They still are welcome to come. And because we still own that place, my husband still works for the company and he has to go for meetings. And when he does, he stays at that property. Wonderful. Wow. Something that you had mentioned in that other interview was you said money in the hands of philanthropists can truly change the world. And that is your goal is to change the world for Assyrian brothers and sisters. So I think that sort of plays into this transition into talking a little bit about the Assyrian Arts Institute. Yes. So this was a project that you had created. And what were you seeing that was a need in the community that led you to start the Assyrian Arts Institute? I felt very fortunate that I had the experience of building an organization. So for me to put an organization, hire the right people, putting them in the right place was very easy. Where it is difficult for a lot of people because they don't have the experience of starting and running a organization, do all this. Plus, through the funding and proceeds from the sale of my business, I decided that I don't need to work anymore and I set aside an amount for Assyrian causes, for my philanthropic uh, work and Assyrian causes, specifically Assyrian. Because, you know, I also care about animal rights and I have other causes that I am passionate about, but a chunk of money was left set aside for just Assyrians. And why was that important for you? to set to allocate money specifically for Assyrians? Because I knew that's what builds organizations and you need funding. So it was a private foundation when we started it. And then we learned that if we want to be a nonprofit organization, we need to change the status and become a public charity, uh, 501c3, because there's a lot of tax benefit to those involved, to people that want to donate, artists that want to get involved with the organization. There's a lot of tax benefit and financial for organization to be a nonprofit public charity instead of private. When it became public charity that was 20 end of 20 December of 2016 all the rules changed financially and made it very challenging for Assyrian Art Institute because it no longer could benefit from that philanthropic funds mm. because a public charity has to be supported by public 33% of the funding of a public charity needs to come from public. And the board or those that are involved can match two to one. 
So if we don't have public funding, we cannot match. And so financially, all of a sudden, the organization was not as strong. And that was a very big challenge, especially with the goals that, very ambitious goals that we have, is to produce and offer first-class Assyrian art that meet the standards of today, art standards that are out there. And and I know that's important too, because you're talking about in Austin that you were were donating to the symphony orchestra that was there. So you have this interest in you that you wanted to carry over to the Assyrian Arts Institute. What is it about Assyrian arts that draws you in? Assyrian arts is an art that has been kept to Assyrians. It has not been mainstreamed. So not too many people, non-Assyrians, have seen Assyrian arts. They don't recognize Assyrian art. They have not enjoyed Assyrian art. And this is a very, very unique art that deserves to be showcased and shown to the world for people to to know that we exist, we are a living culture with art and prove our continuation from our ancient ancestors. Because uh, another problem is not to, you know, scholars don't even believe we exist to start with. And that's a shame because we do exist and there is many of us. But if we keep things to ourselves and world doesn't see the beauty of Assyrian arts and culture and heritage and all they hear when they hear is negative stuff like sacrifices that our people have to make living in geographies that are not uh, supportive of Christians that we are. Uh, You know, these are the things that people start talking about Assyrians usually, and that's the time they realize that there is is a group of people that are called Assyrians, not Syrians, but Assyrians. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think Assyrians have a lot more to show for. They do have challenges, but they have strengths. So we have enough organizations that you know, stand behind compromised Assyrians back home. But I felt like we needed organizations to to show the strength of Assyrians, kind of to balance this. We cannot only talk about the weaknesses and our challenges. We have to balance that with our strength. And we have a lot to show for and be proud of. I learned that by talking to experts art experts. Uh, I develop relationship because I always been interested in art. So I have many friends that are art enthusiasts or professional art leaders, world renowned art leaders. And I talk to them about Assyrian art and they confirm based on their experience and knowledge where we stand and they find our art fascinating. So you mean to tell me that there are non-Assyrians who actually care about the work that and the culture of Assyrians? It's not just Assyrians. Absolutely. Actually, to to tell you this much, uh, we had an exhibit where 
I think you were there too. We Nahan curated Naren Malki's. And if you notice, 30 plus percent of people that came to that curation bought ticket and then ended up buying some of Naren Malki's paintings were non-Assyrians. So we basically opened the door to non-Assyrians to come and be exposed to Assyrian arts. And could you talk a little bit about some of the initiatives that Assyrian Arts Institute has done? Because there are programs that through AAI that are very original and haven't been done before. And so what have been some of those initiatives? Well, I think, you know, there has been organizations that have done Assyrian arts for Assyrians. But one of the things we are doing differently probably is our art leaders are world-renowned art leaders. And why do we pick them first? Because they are coming with wealth of knowledge. Because they have a history of making it big in their in their profession and they could serve as an ideal role model for our Assyrian artists who want to be where they are and become world-renowned artists one day. So definitely they are a good role model. Second, they are very well connected so we can get a lot of attention pay to Assyrian art through these leaders and the friend of these leaders or the connection of these leaders. So that is also very important in order to mainstream Assyrian art because we do have a lot of talents, but if non-Assyrians don't see it, they don't know where it is and they don't get exposure because nobody told them about it, then it's stays within our own community and the beauty of our art is not known to the world. So I use, for example, Armenians as uh, a nation that has beautiful art and have done a fantastic job to mainstream their art. They are in festivals like Thanksgiving, uh, parade, Macy's Thanksgiving Parade in New York, which is reputable parade in the whole world. They, they dance and perform in White House on important stages. They are very successful in mainstreaming their art and having people of the world pay attention to their Armenian causes. I am hoping one day we will do that. And I think we're on the right track to to do that pretty quickly. What event with AAI are you most proud of so far? Every event is very special. I think I if I have to pick one, I won't deny to say Assyrian Women Choir. Because I used to sing in Maestro Nebu Isabe's uh, choir, and I was one of his soloists. And I have a passion for choirs and camaraderie that goes with singers together, you know. It's just a very 
very nice place to be when you are with your choir members producing a you know program and performance together as a team uh, can I, you can you sort uh-huh. of describe what the experience was like and what it entailed for listeners who may not be familiar with what that event was about? Assyrian yeah. women were nine classically trained Assyrian professional vocalists, all females, that we basically had to look for them for a couple years to find them because world-renowned choir conductor re- had a requirement that uh, these women had to sight sing, uh, basically know the music and be able to sing off of music. So they had to be very strong musicians and singers. And me and a lot of other Assyrian singers, we have very good ear. We have learned to to listen to music and maybe even looking at the notes going up and down and following that and trying to sing. But when you are working with world-renowned conductor, you need more than, way more than that. Mm -hmm. So finding these ladies basically took a couple years of auditioning and finding them and bringing them from a global Assyrian community. One came from Ukraine, one came from Germany, a few came from Canada, one came from New York, the other one from Louisiana, one from Turlock. And, you know, so basically they all came. None of them knew each other before. And they had three days to rehearse and do their concert. I said, that's just impossible (laughs) because i've been in choirs and it takes a year or two especially with the music that was picked it was not an easy music it was a lot of very sophisticated music plus few popular christmas carols that everybody loves and they want to hear Mm -hmm. during christmas so this was a christmas concert but most of the songs were just very complicated uh, and hard to perform so I said there is no way this just one of the songs would take somebody like me in Nebu's choir a year to (laughs) to say how can these girls sing it in three days and perform it so I was like sweating and I said there's no way and Dr. Archibald, they're kind of, oh, no, you know, I know these girls. I listen to them. They can do it. So here the girls came. First hour, they almost performed perfectly. I was floored. I just couldn't (laughs) believe my ears that how can these girls come together, not knowing each other, meeting each other for first time, and sing so beautifully together. That's talent. That's pure talent. Definitely, that's pure talent. That's experience. That's musicianship of these girls, plus the genius that we had in the conductor. Mm -hmm. Because if the conductor was not right, yes, they all had beautiful voices, but they never sang together as in, in harmony. You know, even in my choir, when I was singing, we were singing for, you know, voices and stuff like that. But harmonies that I saw that Dr. Archibald 
created with these voices was called genius. So maybe that's why I would favor that, even though I love ballet that we had in 2017 Christmas. It was basically a sequel of Nutcracker, and it was just beautiful. Nahrim Malki's curation was beautiful. Azaduta came, and they performed beautifully. So it's hard to say which one I favor, but because of my involvement and my past in choir, I really, really appreciated what nine beautiful Assyrian female vocalists did in three days rehearsal before two amazing concerts. I could see why. During your time with AAI, have there been times where people are like, Nora, Menshi Bassett, <laughs> Nashadian, Leyalpi, they don't know these things, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money, you're wasting your efforts, yeah. don't bother, put it into something else? All the time. And what leads you to drown that out and remember why this is important for you? Well, you're talking to entrepreneur. I'm visionary. I envision where Assyrian Art Institute is going. And I envision it in five years from now. I envision it on 10 years from now. My mind is trained to envision. And when I hear people say stuff like that, for me, they're noise. I, I heard it in my business. How many people thought it is impossible for me to succeed and reach my goal, business goal, and uh, is the same noise that is saying what they're saying because I have envisioned Assyrian Art Institute to be a game changer and it is moving in the right direction and it will succeed. You're carrying on your experience from your business into AAI, but I think it's also that entrepreneurial spirit yeah. that that AAI benefits from. You're speaking about your vision, five years, 10 years. What do you foresee AAI being in five years, 10 years? In five years, I think we will be where Armenians are today, which is not bad. We have role models people that went through hardship with us in 1915 through genocides and stuff and they are where they are of course we are uh, we don't have a country we are a stateless nation that makes it more challenging there is less of us than armenians but they have done a lot with what they have and uh, it's good to have some nation to look up to and and relate to and Assyrians and Armenians always relate to each other very They're closely like brothers and sisters yeah exactly so i think they have done a marvelous job of mainstreaming their art and gaining a very positive reputation for their people and i think that's where we're going to be in 5 years in 10 years i think our music our art will be taught in universities and will be researched 
and scholars that believe we don't exist will change their mind. They will know that we do exist and we have a lot to offer. Something I appreciate about the Assyrian Arts Institute is that it really takes a close look at not only elevating what it is that we have already existing, but also looking at the parts of our culture that need to be uh, need to have a deeper focus and more of an attention on. And one of those is the Assyrian New Year, a Kitu festival. I remember a post, I believe it was last year, yeah. of trying to get people brainstorming and thinking of what are special things that can be brought around the idea of Assyrian New Year. So if you yes. could talk a little bit more about what the idea of that was. Yes. Well, the idea started when... I saw a lot of my friends and family members show, uh, showcasing and taking picture of their half scene uh, and putting it on Facebook. And I start thinking, why are we doing this? I mean, this is Iranian. Yes, we were born and raised in Iran, but we're Assyrian. And then I start researching it. And boy, I learned a lot that we're... Uh, that tradition, that Iranian tradition started. It started, a lot of it is from Assyrians. Even though they don't give us credit, they said it started from Zartashti, which is also Iranian. But no, it's not. It's Assyrians. For example... Uh, and could, sorry, could you explain a little bit what Hafsin is in case people might not know? Hafsin, Haft means seven in Iranian language, uh, Persian, and Sin is an alphabet, like S, mm -hmm. for example. Sheen for Assyrians. Exactly. Yeah. So they have a table display with seven items that start with S or Sheen, uh, and they call it half Sin, half seven and Sin. And when I start researching, uh, Assyrians ancient New Year tradition this and that and I learned that number seven always been very important to Assyrians so that's where Iranian got the number uh, the seven and do you know why it was important <laughs> I'm not a seriologist okay. and I'm not qualified to answer but uh, th these are some facts that are out there and can discuss with scholars that we have we, by the way we have very talented and knowledgeable scholars so it just basically started from there that why can't we revive Assyrian traditions instead of taking pride on Iranian traditions uh, I think every Assyrian if he or she is giving a choice between practicing an Assyrian tradition versus Iranian tradition will take Assyrian tradition, at least I hope, <laughs> because uh, we have beautiful traditions. And actually, we are in the process, we started today, and we are in the process of introducing this uh, tradition that was suggested to us by um, our friends on Facebook, friends of AI, people that are visiting our pages, a page or post, and made suggestions based on their research. So we have started to post uh, this information. And our goal is that before March 20th, 
at 5.58 p.m., which is actually when the Assyrian New Year starts this year in 2019, we will have this tradition all communicated, videotaped, shown to uh, Assyrians that are interested to practice Assyrian tradition instead of tradition of other cultures. And there is something important about that to be able to, and I think that's maybe what attracts people to have seen and celebrating, aside from maybe they were born in, in Iran and have some sort of connection with that, but it's being able to have the symbolism around a yes. bigger idea. Yes. And so when we are able to grab those things that were a part of our history and revive them, and, and then that becomes sort of a tradition that they know every year when a Syrian New Year arrives, there are certain things that serve as symbolisms that are important yeah. around that day. Yes. You're able to then also educate younger people about that when they're able to physically see something in front of them. They make that sort of connection in terms of the symbolism and its importance. Yes. So I love that AAI is thinking about this and, and really working on um, making this type of initiative happen yeah. because it is very important and will bring and re revive this idea of the importance around Assyrian New Year. I agree. Anything else that you want to talk about with AAI? Just want to let Assyrian artists know that we are here very respectfully appreciating their talent to join us, work with us, because we have unbelievable resource in a sense of mentors that we have picked and assigned to, to be available to them. Uh, the resources that we have in, uh, it's a human resource, uh, in the leaders and mentors are priceless. No money in the world can buy these people. For example, Dr. Charlene Archebeck, who is now world-renowned, first female PhD choir conductor in the world, came and conducted Assyrian women. She was a choir conductor for so many years. Then she retired. She moved up. She doesn't conduct choirs nowadays unless, you know, there is a special occasion, but she was willing to basically to, to do that, and she did it free of charge. For me, that is just priceless because her services are priceless. How do you put a price on talent of Charlene Archibald, for heaven's sake, you know? So these people are available to Assyrian artists that one day they want to be Charlene Archibald or another person that uh, is world-renowned artist. Uh, they can at least use them as a mentor. They can learn from them. They're available to teach. And we want our artists to have that opportunity to enjoy that benefit. Yeah. You mentioned uh, mentorship. Growing up, did you have mentors in your life, whether it was life before starting your business or during your business, or as you were starting to think about AAI? No. Uh, unfortunately, I did not, and I wish I did. I had a, 
very kind and wise father that gave me very good advice. But my father was an attorney and not an entrepreneur in business. So I never had a mentor to work with me and help me out. I had to learn a lot of life on my own by reading, by researching on my own, and by uh, observing, trying to make right decisions, minimize the wrong decisions. Because I learned that the more The better decisions you make, the faster you grow and advance. And I also learned that every mistake I make, it puts me back a few years or challenge me and challenge my life and my happiness. So knowing what you know now, what would you tell a younger version of you, assuming that it isn't what you just said? Well, I would say that uh, that person is lucky to have resources that AI or myself can provide. As a mentor, uh, I am willing to uh, invest time and energy in uh, a smaller version of me, an entrepreneur, a Syrian that wants to start a business or a company I can give advice at no charge of course and be a mentor uh, if somebody wants to have a life like mine that's beautiful and thank you for sharing that because I think uh, many Assyrians can agree with that I know myself personally as an Assyrian woman it is very hard to find other Assyrian women that I can consider mentors and a lot of it's just that Men have been in their fields a lot longer than women have. And so, you know, this is something, at least within our modern history, that's still relatively new. So I appreciate you saying that. For our listeners that are listening from all throughout the world, what is one thing that you would tell them? Uh, Dream big and give back to the world. It's not all about us. Actually, there is more fulfillment when you give back than when you take. Have observed some people have not experienced the ful- that fulfillment because they have enjoyed what they have on their own, but it takes people to the next level of enjoyment when they give back and they see when they give back how uh, changes the world and makes world a kinder and better place. And I'm not talking financial, I'm talking about emotional and uh, intellectual, because we can give back so many different ways. Some people think giving back can only be possible financially, but no, if somebody is willing to share their experiences, if somebody is willing to mentor others, young people, if somebody's willing to volunteer and spend time in a cause that they are passionate about, help people, help animals, uh, and make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. We produce new episodes every Tuesday, so if you love what you hear, subscribe to us wherever you're listening to this, and we'll see you next week.